as the calendar turns to January each year, we tend to become even more time conscious than usual. Have you noticed that? So I thought it would be a good idea today to get a biblical perspective on time. Time, of course, hasn't always been, and it won't continue forever, for that matter. For now, however, it constrains our existence and influences our lives immeasurably. I had the opportunity to reflect on it more than usual this time of year because my eldest son, Chris, and I both share birthdays coming up in early January. Chris also has an interesting perspective on the passage of time, uh, uh, dating back to when he was in his mid-teens. Most people who didn't know him, and even many who did, would judge from his appearance that he was several years younger than he really was. And he gets that trait from his mother, <laughs> not me, and she got that trait from her father. So when Chris was 16, he looked like he could have been 13, which is not what an aspiring young man wants. And it didn't help that it seemed like his growth was stunted as well, so he was shorter than most of his peers. And it wasn't until late in high school that he got a growth spurt and became taller than me. Well, in the meantime, he eventually learned to have fun with it. In fact, I suggested to him what he can say to someone who can't believe how old he was. Say, I've inherited this trait from my two grandfathers. One has always looked young for his age, and the other is shorter than average. So because of the one grandfather, I look younger than I really am. And because of my other grandfather, I look shorter than I really am. <laughs> of course, that's a distortion of ultimate reality, right? Christians, however, should be able to identify with the need to look at ultimate reality. Ultimate reality may be quite different from the way things appear. This is particularly true in the time-constrained world in which we live. Since, as Scripture reveals to us, ultimate reality is found in God, and He exists in eternity, outside of time. Most people can't believe that eternity can have much of an impact on our lives here and now. You, you've probably heard the complaint, he's so heavenly-minded, he's no earthly good right? Well, that complaint is either about someone who hasn't really adopted a biblical perspective on time and eternity, or it's expressed by someone who is unable to understand it or appreciate it. I'd like us to study a passage of Scripture this morning that was written to help make us uh, more time, more, more um, eternity-focused in the application of everyday life. Turn with me, if you would, if you haven't already, to the book of Philippians, the chapter 3. You remember that this is a letter from the Apostle Paul and Timothy to the church in Philippi that they, together with Silas, helped uh, to plant. Now, Philippi was a Roman city in Macedonia, what is now the northern part of Greece. And in chapter 3, verse 1, where we're going to be starting, is near the middle of the book, the letter, and in many ways begins the climax of Paul's message here. In this chapter, Paul uses three verses as an introduction, and then follows with two contrasting examples of the main points he wants to make, and then he ends with an exhortation. I'll read the chapter as we progress 
through it. So his introduction is in verses 1 through 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Notice that Paul begins by saying, finally. You might think that he's about to discuss the last of a series of topics, but that's not the case. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. That is a theme that runs throughout the entire book, both before and after this verse. You see it in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 4, all the way through Philippians. In this book, Paul has described his own joy, and then he urged his readers to follow his example, as he's doing here. So much so that this book is often referred to as the epistle of joy. In fact, he acknowledges that he's repeating himself somewhat here. He says, to write the same things again is no trouble to me. So rather than coming to the end of a list of things, Paul is building to the ultimate lesson he wants to give to his readers. Rejoice in the Lord rather than in circumstances. You get that? Rejoice in the Lord rather than in circumstances. The circumstances will change over time. The Lord doesn't. Remember that he wrote this letter from a Roman prison. We see that in chapter 1. He was falsely accused, much like his imprisonment in Philippi that began this uh, ministry. In both cases, his circumstances were unfair and cruel, yet both times he was able to rejoice. You remember that while he and Silas were in the Philippian prison, they were singing praises to God at midnight, even before God miraculously released them. And this chapter reveals why they could do that. He says this is a safeguard for them, his readers. A safeguard. That word means without fail. It's certain. In other words, the truth about rejoicing the Lord, upon which he's about to elaborate, is a certainty they can rely on. He begins making his point by offering a contrast between false believers and true believers in verses 2 and 3. And he uses three terms to describe a group of people who may be very religious, but who miss the point entirely. First of all, he calls them dogs. Now, that's a derogatory term. It conveys the idea of unclean foreigners. He uses the term evil workers, referring to their motives and actions, which are opposed to God. And here and throughout the rest of the chapter, he calls them the false circumcision, which underscores the fact that they completely miss the point. The Greek word for circumcision is peritome, those who cut around that's the true circumcision. But the word he's using here for false circumcision is katatome, those who cut through. In other words, those who miss the point completely, they do it excessively, falsely believing it's their, their efforts, their work, that saves them. So who are the false circumcision Paul was referring to? Jews who thought they were acceptable to God based on their works, but were instead completely cut off from God. He warned his readers to beware of them, not to be like them or to be influenced by them. In contrast, Paul describes us, himself and us, as the true circumcision, literally the circumcision. We are the ones who worship God in spirit and truth. 
as Jesus explained to the woman at the well. We are the ones who acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ and exult in a vital relationship with him. And in contrast with the false believers, we put no confidence in the flesh. Notice that this word, confidence, is related to faith. The issue is, what do we trust in? What, do we, what hope do we have? What does the future hold for us? Paul exposes what these false believers trust in, their flesh, their own works. In contrast, our faith rests solely on Jesus Christ. Amen? There is a world of difference between these two groups of people. And while reminding us of what is true of us, Paul warns us not to be swayed by those who are in error. There can be no hope. There can be no assurance. There can be no joy if we follow the pattern of these false believers. With this introduction, then, the rest of the chapter explains how and why true believers can have real joy and false believers cannot. First, he starts with the example of the false circumcision in verses 4 through 6. And the example he gives is actually of himself. Verse 4, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. He's referring, of course, to his, his life before Christ as the example here. And so if anyone should be able to look to the future gov, uh, judgment of God, confident that he had done all that could be expected of him, it would have been the Apostle Paul before his conversion. Now, you know what it means to grade on the curve, don't you? Uh, basically, it means that your teacher would compare your ability and what you've accomplished with everyone else in the class. So when the teacher looks at all the grades of a class of 30 or so students, he sees a few at the low end, a few at the high end, and most people kind of group together in the middle, around average. Grading on the curve means that you give A's to the few at the high end, even if that high end is only 50% and you give Fs to a few at the low end, even if their grades are over 90%. So grading on the curve always gives A's to the top few and always fails the bottom few because it is based on how well the students do compared to each other rather than to a perfect score. Paul is saying that if, if God graded on the curve, he, Paul, would be certain to get an A. Not because of the value of his accomplishments in God's eyes, but because his accomplishments would be better than any other human, or at least the overwhelming majority of all other humans. Look at his humble description of his qualifications in verses 5 and 6 circumcised the eighth day as the law required of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Notice that Paul describes four key credentials that he used to be banking on. First was his heritage circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul is a child of Abraham, Jacob, Benjamin, one of God's chosen people, unmixed with any other people, and therefore the false circumcision would argue, one who could be confident of God's favor. What's more, his second credential is his classification under the law. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee. Not only had he been born right, 
but he became a member of a group within Judaism that strived to keep all of God's requirements to the letter. He was a card-carrying Pharisee, after all. Surely, if God graded on the curve, he would be among those who would be at the high end and get an A. And so if that weren't enough, Paul gives a third credential, his actions, as to zeal a persecutor of the church. His membership in the nation of Israel and in the sect of the Pharisees was accomplished by a zealous defense of his religion, God's religion, against all threats. In his day, the most serious threat was perceived to come from the followers of Jesus of Nazareth. So he took the initiative to hold these people accountable to the law and customs of the Jews. Paul was sure that in doing so, he was defending the truth. His actions were consistent with his membership credentials. Surely he thought he would be among the choice few at the extreme good end of the curve. And then finally, his last credential that he lists is his evaluation by others as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. Everything the law required of him, at least as far as people could see, he kept to the letter. No one could charge him with any act or any um, thing that he didn't do that would be a failure under the law. Beyond that, as a Pharisee, he kept the strictest applications of the law embodied in hundreds of additional rules and traditions. Clearly, those of the false circumcision would argue, Paul was a shining example of someone who could have confidence in the flesh, someone who could confidently face a future judgment of God if God grades on the curve. Well, it's pretty easy for us sitting here to see how foolish such thinking would have been, how inadequate even those credentials were, impressive as they were, before our holy God, whose justice cannot allow him to grade on the curve. But do you think we sometimes are guilty of the same thing? Having confidence in the flesh, our accomplishments? Maybe with us, the credentials might be described something like this. Born into a Christian family. Learned the scriptures from childhood. Baptized when I was 10. Member of an independent Bible church. An evangelical of evangelicals. As to doctrine, a MacArthurite. As to zeal, a homeschooler. As to what people would expect of a conservative Christian, found blameless. Listen, if those are the sorts of things we are relying on, then we have no hope. And therefore, we can have no joy. Those sorts of credentials have no standing before our holy and just God. If those are the kinds of things we have confidence in, then what will happen to us when we lose our reputation, when we lose our favor in the eyes of men, when we lose everything we've worked so hard to achieve? Well, you may ask, is it really that probable we're going to lose all those things? Friends, the apostles' answer is that we must lose them. That brings us to his next major point, his example of the true circumcision found in verses 7 through 14. Paul again uses himself as the example, only this time it's his example in Christ, which we are to follow. His explanation of the true circumcision answers three basic questions, what, why, and how. He begins with what in verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, 
those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish. First, notice what Paul considers to have lost already. Whatever things were gained to me, and then he says, all things. In other words, the four credentials he just described, his heritage, his classification under the law, his actions, and his evaluation by others. Anything that he might otherwise have counted on in his old way of thinking. And how does he now view those things? He uses the word loss three times. He even uses the word rubbish. In other words, since none of these things gained any favor with our holy and just God, they're not worthy, they're not worth anything compared to knowing Jesus as both Savior and Lord. So the bottom line, the what of this example, is that God's holiness and justice and our sinfulness leave no option other than that our human credentials have been made worthless. We have suffered the loss of all these things already. We're passive in that. These things happened to us. So the first thing we need to do as those of the true circumcision is to acknowledge that fact. Release our grip on those things. Understand and agree that our human credentials, whether things we have inherited or things we have worked hard for, are of no inherent value in terms of our standing before God. We need to act as if we've already lost them, which is an action on our part as a response. We certainly can't take these things with us. Do you see how this encourages us to have an eternal mindset? That's where he's heading here. In the next part of his example, Paul explains why we should have this attitude toward our human credentials. And notice here that four times in these verses, Paul uses the phrase, that I may. He's explaining why, that I may. He uses the subjunctive mood here in the Greek, not because the future events may not happen, but because the thing that made these things possible, knowing Christ, was specifically cited. That's the reason, these are the reasons why um, that are based on that, that certainty, the uh, knowing of Christ. He gives us four reasons why we should consider our human credentials as lost, and I pick up in the middle of verse 8. In order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the power of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That I may gain Christ is the first thing he lists here. This gain is in direct contrast to what was gained under the false circumcision. Both can't be gained to us. Paul is merely saying that the primary reason why he or anyone would give up our human credentials is to have Christ instead. You remember that famous quote from Jim Elliott, who was a martyred missionary in, uh, to the Alca India Indians in Ecuador, who said, he is no fool who gains what he cannot keep, that is, our human efforts and human achievements. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose, eternal life in Christ, right? That's what Paul's saying here. When we forsake our credentials and trust in Christ alone for our salvation, we gain eternal life. 
And the second reason he lists for forsaking our human credentials is that I may be found in him, having his righteousness, not my own. Under the false circumcision, people thought that they had to show themselves to be righteous by obeying all of the law's commands. That still motivates people today, not necessarily living up to the Old Testament law. It can be any attempt to make ourselves appear to be worthy to God. But that completely misses the point. As sinful people, we are entirely unable to make ourselves acceptable to our holy God. Paul emphasizes here that those of the true circumcision are in Christ. God has imputed, that is, he has given to us the genuine and perfect righteousness of Christ. Because we have been placed in Christ, we are um, uh, redeemed, as we just sang. And it's for that reason that we are now acceptable to God. When God looks at us, he's not looking at our merit. He's looking only at the merit of Jesus because we are in Christ. Well, that is not surprising then that back in verse 8, Paul said, um, he referred to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's why it's so surpassing. And that brings us to the third reason for forsaking all human credentials. Not only so that we would gain Christ and be in Christ, but that we would actually know Christ. Look at verse 10. This verse actually explains that there are three things related to knowing Christ. And it's referring here to a knowledge from experience, not just a head knowledge. It reminds us of the immediate and the ongoing benefit that accompanies our eternal position. First, he says that I may know him, that is Christ. Jesus is not just our Savior, guaranteeing our eternal place in heaven, but he's also the living God with whom we are able to enjoy intimate fellowship even here and now from the moment of salvation on into eternity. And beyond that, our growing in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ also refers to our becoming more like him. Yes, we are declared righteous because we are in him and he has paid off all of our sins, but experientially, we grow more and more in righteousness. So the better we know him, the more we become like him. We never stop maturing. So what kind of endeavor is this? You might call it a forever endeavor. He says that I may know the power of his resurrection. So I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Throughout this endeavor that we're on, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is operative in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. The third person of the triune God actually takes up residence in us, empowering us to mature into Christ-likeness, giving us true life in the true circumcision. You remember in Romans 8 verse 11, we read, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. Thirdly, he says that I may know the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Becoming more and more like Christ means that we become less and less like the world. As such, we become a fork in the road. People are compelled to make a choice due to their encounter with us. Some will be attracted to Christ through our righteous example, 
Others, however, will find the Christ in us to be a stumbling block. Jesus knew this. In John 15, we read Jesus saying, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But these things, all these things, they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. And elsewhere, Paul made this wonderful promise. Indeed, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12 To know the fellowship of his sufferings means to share in them. Now, there is a promise you can claim, right? To some extent, we can be grateful that we don't face much persecution in this country on account of our faith. Countless believers before us and many others around the world today, however, are not so fortunate. However, I think it's also safe to say that most of us don't experience as much persecution as we should. Why not? Because we're not all that different from the world. Well, like we should be. There's not much in us often for the world to object to or to be attracted to. We're not the fork in the road that we're meant to be all too often. Being part of the true circumcision inevitably attracts the opposition of the false circumcision. Well, being conformed to his death doesn't necessarily mean, in fact, it almost certainly won't mean that we're destined to be crucified physically. Rather, it means that instead of being dead in sin as the false circumcision, we are dead to sin. Our old self was crucified with Christ, as we learn from Romans 6. This leads naturally to the last reason for forsaking our human credentials. Verse 11, he says, that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. We have died to sin, and the blessings now of walking in newness of life, but we also have the firm assurance that he will one day, that we will one day be resurrected physically to be with God forever in heaven. Those of the false circumcision have no such assurance. In fact, they can have no assurance that their human credentials are good enough to satisfy a holy and just God. Those who die outside of Christ will be resurrected, but theirs will be a resurrection to eternal judgment rather than to eternal life. Now, notice that these four reasons why we should forsake our human credentials stand in direct contrast with the four types of credentials that Paul gave when describing the false circumcision. First, the false circumcision depends on a heritage rooted in the past, while the true circumcision looks forward to an inheritance anchored in the future. Whereas Paul used to take pride that he was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, he now speaks of attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Secondly, the false circumcision boasts on a classification under the law, while the true circumcision is humbled by a classification under grace, God's grace. Whereas Paul used to take pride in being a Pharisee as to the law, he now seeks only to gain Christ without any merit of his own. Third, the zeal of the false circumcision drove Paul to be a prime source of persecution and suffering, while his zeal in the true circumcision drives him to be a prime target of persecution and suffering. 
Fourth, the false circumcision is motivated by the evaluation of others, while the true circumcision is motivated by our evaluation by God. Notice that in verse 6, Paul used to think that as to the righteousness which is in the law, he would be found blameless, presumably by man. All outward indications were that he kept the law perfectly. Note, however, his motivation is now that God would find him in Christ. It's no longer the approval of man that motivates him, but the approval of God. And that's possible only by being in Christ. The righteousness of man is as filthy rags to God, as we see in Scripture, no matter how good we appear to man. So now that Paul has laid out for us the what of the true circumstance, uh, the true circumstance, true circumcision is, and why we should embrace it, he now turns to how we can live in it. Look at verse 12. Not that have I, I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Notice first that Paul acknowledges that the true circumcision is a process of growing in maturity as opposed to the false circumcision under which someone might be tempted to think that he'd already done everything that was required, that he's made it. And the it here that Paul's referring to that he hasn't yet obtained is the resurrection from the dead referred to in the previous verse. But Paul connects that to becoming perfect, which is similarly not yet fulfilled. Next, notice God's part in our maturing process. He says, not that I have already become perfect, and says, uh, for which I was laid hold of by Christ. Both of these are in the passive voice, things that are happening uh, or have happened to him, not things he has done, but things that have been done for him and to him. In contrast, the false circumcision, and it's all by our own effort, our own actions. But we do have a role as well. Paul describes what we are to do in four ways. He says we are to press on. The Greek word here is usually translated to persecute. And he actually used that word in verse 6, where he talked about being a persecutor of the church. Other times it's translated to follow after. The root meaning is to flee, to pursue a particular course earnestly. Our role is to pursue maturity in Christ earnestly. God does it, but he requires our obedience and faithfulness and cooperation. He hasn't just called us to prop up our feet, relax, and just zap us with your righteousness, right? Just as Paul was zealous to persecute believers in his earlier life, so now he was zealous to pursue godliness. Secondly, he says we're to lay hold of. The Greek word here means to lay hold of so that we make it our own, possess it. It speaks of future appropriation. He says, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. We press on so that when we are together with Christ in heaven, we will have laid hold of the godliness we have pursued in this life in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then lastly, he says, we are to forget what lies behind, all of our human credentials. They are as loss, as rubbish, having no eternal value, and we're to treat them as such. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that they're wiped from our memory, only that we, denote, we no longer cherish them. We no longer rely on them. And I'm sorry, there is one other term he uses, and that is reaching forward. 
forgetting what lies behind, but reaching forward to what lies ahead. That's related to pressing on. Um, we're focused on what lies ahead, both our future with God in heaven and our progress in the meantime in godliness. In other words, we are to progress earnestly toward maturity, godliness, and righteousness, not in our own power, but in obedience to the indwelling Holy Spirit of the word and the Word of God. This will culminate in eternal fellowship with God. That's why he laid hold of us, to have that eternal fellowship. And that maturity in Christ is referred to in verse 14 in three ways. First, he calls it our goal. The Greek word is skopos. We're scoping out what is uh, we're, we're to be looking at earnestly. The second word he uses is a prize. That word's used here and only one other place in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, which says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. And then thirdly, he, he refers to it as our upward call, our high calling by God, our heavenly destination. So becoming mature, becoming Christ-like, is something that we look forward to earnestly as a prize to be given to us in due time. And it's what God's call is all about. It's a forever endeavor. It's continuing now and it goes on into eternity. And it should capture our attention and energy accordingly. So having used his former self as an example of the false circumcision and his current self as an example of the true circumcision, Paul directs his attention to his readers by exhorting us to maintain that eternal mindset. So first, he exhorts us to follow his example. Then he exhorts us to avoid the example of the false circumcision by way of review. And he ends with a final illustration of the eternal mindset we are to have. Look at verse 15. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you also. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Notice that although he admitted in verse 12 that he was not yet perfect, he now refers to himself and many of his readers as perfect. And yes, it's the same word that's being used here. So is this some kind of contradiction? Come on, Paul, you spent all this time explaining that our maturing in Christ is a process, and then we're to press on toward Christ-likeness, but now you're saying we're already perfect? Yes and no. Don't you love that? He speaks of our maturity as an accomplished fact in the sense that the righteousness of Christ has already been imputed to us. It's Our account is fully the righteousness of Christ. When God looks at us, he sees the perfections of Christ. That's why we can be called saints. That means holy ones. In God's eyes, we're completely holy. That's our position in Christ. But that doesn't mean that we fully experience and exhibit that holiness already. That comes in increasing measure as we mature. Recall verse 6 of chapter 1 where Paul said, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So he exhorts his readers, who are true believers, to have this attitude, or literally this mindset. What mindset? The eternal mindset that Paul had, which, as in the previous verse, should motivate us to press on toward maturity. Then he says that if we have some other mindset, in other words, we're motivated um, not to press on, God will deal with us presumably convict us accordingly. 
In any case, he exhorts us to continue pressing on to Christian maturity, following the example that we have in him and those who follow his example. And that's in contrast, of course, to the example we are to avoid, which he outlines in verses 18 and 19. For many walk of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Earthly things doesn't mean just worldly morality, but more generally, anything of temporary value. And this phrase, set their minds, is the same word phroneo, translated as attitude in verse 15, which can also be translated mindset. I love that word. Paul is obviously very passionate in his exhortation here. God forbid that we should be led astray by those who have an earthly, temporal mindset. You know, the root meaning of the word secular is temporal, emphasizing that secular concerns are in contrast with eternal truths and eternal values. And those eternal values and truths are highlighted in the remaining verses of this chapter. Look at verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. This word citizenship refers to the sphere governing our behavior and values. The point is that we are of heaven, not of this world. We're currently involved in a process of becoming more and more like Christ, but one day he will make even our bodies to be like his. Understanding that eternal reality should motivate us to press on. So, should it be true that we're so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good? Not at all. Actually, we face a much greater danger of being so earthly-minded we're of no heavenly good. Having an appropriate eternal mindset is the only way to live life now the way it was meant to be lived. Consider Paul's entire letter to the Philippians. You remember that I observed earlier that Paul was able to have great joy in the face of persecution, even while writing this letter? Well, the reason why Paul could have such joy is that under the true circumcision, he now has an eternal mindset. Not only that he's thinking about eternity, but he knows that's certain. The temporal things that might otherwise cause discouragement and defeat cannot quench that joy. The temporal circumstances are only for a season. But our inheritance in Christ is eternal. And it's not just something in the future. It starts now from the moment of salvation. And that's cause for great joy in the midst of circumstances. Consider chapter 4, verse 4 and 5 in Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Think about that. The Lord's return is near. A lot nearer than when Paul wrote this letter. Does that cause you to rejoice? You know, I think a, a good test of your mindset, whether it's an eternal mindset or an earthly one, is to ask yourself, what if we were to know with certainty that Christ would return for us one month from today? Would you be disappointed that you would miss out on some anticipated event or activity in your life? 
Would you arrange your schedule so that you could experience some of those things beforehand? If you would feel cheated out of some earthly experience due to the imminent return of Christ, I would suggest that maybe your mindset is more earthly than eternal. On the other hand, if your reaction to the news that Christ was about to return would be to get your spiritual life in order quickly and to reach out to others desperately, then I think we could say that you could also, that could also be an indication that your mind is set too much on earthly things. For there's no reason to respond that way to the news of Christ's imminent return that is not already reason for us to have our spiritual lives in order. Now, so what is your mind set on as you begin 2022? If you're of the false circumcision, relying on your own efforts to become acceptable before our holy God, I plead with you, repent from your sin. Acknowledge to God, as Paul did, that you cannot overcome sin, which disqualifies you from a relationship with God. And trust instead in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you do that, let me know so I'll know how to pray for you and offer you help in your faith. But if you're here today as a child of God and he's convicting you like he's been convicting me, that your mind and heart may have been drawn too much to temporal things than to eternal reality, and you would like to you would like your life to increasingly demonstrate eternal values, then I invite you to join me in praying for God's forgiveness and unhindered reign over our wills. I'm going to close in prayer, following which we're going to actually sing a prayer. I pray that you would make those your own. Our Father, we do rejoice that our, those of us who are in Christ have the firm confidence, assurance, guarantee of life with you forever. We don't deserve it. It's all by your grace. And I pray, Lord, that we would embody that reality in our choices, in our thinking, in our behavior, that we would become, by your power, more and more like Christ, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.